I'm reminded at this point um, of, you know, when you get on an airplane and, and uh, uh, there's always that one person, right, uh, who's in front of you and they're trying so hard to get that oversized suitcase, right, into the compartment above head. And everyone's looking at them and saying, that is not going to fit. It's like, please, for the sake of everyone standing behind you, uh, recognize the obvious. Uh, sometimes our hermeneutic can work this way. We, we try to make as desperately as possible, uh, we try to treat the Bible this way and, and make um, everything in the economy be fit into that compartment that we've crafted, um, the imminent trinity. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome back to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am in the recording studio today with Dr. Matthew Barrett and uh, fellow PhD student Sam Parkinson. We are picking back up our conversation regarding the eternal functional subordination conversation, uh, which if you just remind listeners, this is uh, covering the material of Chapter 8, in Dr. Barrett's new book, Simply Trinity, The Unmanipulated Father, Son, and Spirit. Just as a reminder, you can pick that book up on, you can pre-order it at least on Amazon uh, and Baker Baker's website as well. So we, we covered a lot in episode one. So uh, we have just as much material to cover in chapter two. So I hope you guys are ready. How are you feeling? Very ready. We're here. Yeah. We're, we've got uh, bottles. <laughs> back in the studio. Back, back in the studio. We've got bottles of water. Yeah. We're, uh, I'm, I'm prepared to start, you know, dumping a bottle of water on my head just to <laughs> right. wake me up and uh, keep going. So let's that, let's do it. That's great. Okay, let's jump right in. I want to talk about. I want to begin episode two on methodology. Uh, I want to ask two questions about methodology. The first is you use this phrase, Dr. Barrett, in your book. You use this phrase, crude narrow biblicism. Okay. So let's talk about that that idea, what mistake could come from using this method of, of, of crude narrow biblicism? What is it and what mistakes, what, what fatal flaws can come from an overly formulaic uh, articulation of the Trinity in general? Can I just real quick, just before you even answer that question, I think it, we would be remiss to not point out that you did write a book on sola scriptura. <laughs> so before we we just write you off, okay, Dr. Barrett's going to, you know, criticize biblicism. He's not a Bible guy. By criticizing crude biblicism, you don't mean to criticize biblical authority. You are a Bible guy, a sola Bible guy. Yeah. It, in fact, I, I wear a sport coat most days, but if, if I take it off, I've got a, a tattoo. <laughs> uh, a sola, <laughs> the five solas tattooed on my my shoulder. My wife wasn't too pleased with that, but uh, no, you're exactly right, Sam. Um, I have written a book on biblical authority and and uh, defending sola scriptura and its importance. Um, at the same time, even in that book, God's Word Alone, I am very quick to say, even towards the beginning, 
Um, sola scriptura is not the same thing as solo scriptura or nuda scriptura. Yeah. Uh, that is uh, the second position is, is the view of, of radicals during the 16th century, which were suspicious or critical towards uh, the tradition and dispensed with Catholicity with a lowercase c, Catholicity altogether in some cases. Uh, the reformers, by contrast, uh, affirm Scripture as the final um, written revelation and authority, um, but at the same time, they recognize that they were standing on the shoulders of others and that they were very much uh, coming to the Scriptures with the church and for the church. We like that saying around here. Mm. Um, and so I like to encourage uh, churchgoers, pastors, students to say, if you're for the church, then read the Bible with the church. Amen. Uh, you're not uh, an Enlightenment autonomous individual, I hope. Mm. Well, if not, then that means we practice hermeneutical humility. Yes. And while uh, we don't assume that the great tradition is uh, inerrant, um, nonetheless, we are very much locked arm in arm with them to understand and be faithful to the creedal expressions like the Nicene Creed. Because, first and foremost, we believe that those have been tested through time and shown to be faithful to the Scriptures themselves. Mm -hmm. So, yes, thank you for that. Um, with that qualification aside, uh, when we talk about this crude, narrow biblicism, uh, we're not necessarily talking about biblical authority. Uh, we're talking rather about methodology. How do we approach the Bible? And the way that um, evangelicalism has sometimes approached the Bible is uh, I would argue, a bit short-sighted and uh, narrow. What do I mean by that in relationship to our, our discussion of the Trinity? Well, let me just see if I can give maybe an example or two. Um, when we talk about uh, the, the way that the Scriptures speak of the Trinity, we need to, to make sure that we're not adopting a literalistic type of hermeneutic, as if our language is just univocal uh, a one-to-one -one direct correspondence uh, to between our words and God Himself. Um, can can you imagine if that was the case? That would actually put us uh, very close to um, what we'll, we see this in the Old Testament with the way that Israel at times uh, was sucked into idolatry because they conceived of God in a way uh, that was really a bigger, better version of themselves. Mm. Um, let me give you an example of how this plays itself out in evangelicalism, though. Um, we uh, are born and bred um, on a culture, uh, an evangelical culture that emphasizes the gospel. And we are so thankful for that, and we say amen to that. But uh, let's not forget that um, conflation, conflating who God is in and of himself uh, with the economy of salvation, that can be smuggled in at times through this good gospel emphasis. Um, so, as an example, uh, although the incarnation of Christ may be the, the culmination of God's special revelation, the human experience of Christ and everything that goes along with that, from suffering uh, to obedience and submission, that, that is not to be the takeoff zone for our doctrine of God aircraft, if I can use that, that illustration. If, think about this, if we make, for example, the human sufferings of Christ on the cross our launching pad, 
we then project suffering into the imminent trinity as if God suffers in his deity as, as well. This, was a, this has been a very common card to play by modern theology. Moltmann is an obvious example of this. Likewise, though, there's a bit of irony here because we sometimes take that same methodology, even if we don't do commit that same mistake, we take the same methodology, and I think this is what, where EFS gets itself in trouble, and we apply it to our reading of Scripture and the Incarnation in particular. Mm. So if we start with what they call submission in the Incarnation of Christ and then project submission into the imminent Trinity, making this functional hierarchy a personal property of the triune God, well, we actually haven't done anything different. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happened? Well, we've read creaturely characteristics, in this case, uh, subordination or submission, to use their language, back into the divine names, assuming that the human relationships we experience in society are the same for the Trinity or similar to the Trinity, even stem from the Trinity. Um, I, I'm, I'm reminded at this point um, of, you know, when you get on an airplane and, and uh, uh, there's always that one person, right, uh, who's in front of you and they're trying so hard to get that oversized suitcase, right, <laughs> into the compartment above head. And everyone's looking at them and saying, that is not going to fit. It's like, please, for the sake of everyone standing behind you, uh, recognize the obvious. Uh, sometimes our hermeneutic can work this way. We, we try to make as desperately as possible, uh, we try to treat the Bible this way and, and make um, everything in the economy be fit into that compartment that we've crafted um, the imminent Trinity, and and this is why in my book I say let's let's take a first class approach <laughs> instead of an <laughs> uh, instead of instead of writing economy let's write first class instead mm. and recognize and respect and recognize the difference between uh, God in and of Himself His in His processions and then His missions in salvation history. That's so helpful because it e- even when we're talking about and we we've talked about missions and processions um, in previous episodes, but it's so helpful because what we're not saying is that what's happening in the economy is communicating nothing about God in himself. Um, it, it does. It, it's true revelation, but it's, we, we have to take a holistic approach when we're, when we're trying to understand, you know, we're, we're dealing with an incomprehensible God who is accommodating himself mm-hmm. in revelation. And the way that he does that is by deploying a, multiple uh, metaphors that that get at the their you know who he is in himself. So it does communicate something, but you can't just take one metaphor and say this this aspect of the metaphor is completely controlling because then it begins to break down. Yeah. You know, we we have passages in scripture that talk about the son submitting to the father and the this whole language of father and son, but you also have the uh, metaphor of a light and its radiance, yeah. or a king and his wisdom, or um, you know, a, uh, a strong man and his strong arm, you know, and, and uh, you know these things, uh, wisdom, or uh, a person and his word, you know, word submitting to a to a speaker doesn't really make sense. A radiance submitting to its light doesn't really make sense. Yeah. So we're trying to take all of the biblical revelation together and say, okay. These the the economy does reveal something about who God is and Himself, mm. but 
whatever conclusion we're drawing from this, it has to make sense of all of the metaphors, not just one. Yeah, and this is, you know, I try throughout the book to provide some helpful charts and diagrams, uh, which it pretty much stretches my, you know, graphic design <laughs> abilities to the max. Um, but one of the ways I do this is to say, um, with EFS, though they, they might deny this, I, I think, you know, to be critical, I think that they are committing this, whether they realize it or not. Uh, they are projecting the economy um, back into the the imminent trinity. And w- what I argue for instead is to say, when we look at the missions, mm. um, yes, they do reveal to us uh, something about the processions, but it is specific. Yes, We're not to, to look at everything that occurs in the missions and everything that occurs in the, the incarnation by virtue of Christ's human nature or his, or his office as last Adam, and, and then just assume, or worst case scenario, project that back into the imminent life of God. Mm. No, in Scripture, it's very specific that what is revealed in these missions is, is their eternal relations of origin, mm. the Son begotten from the Father, the Spirit spirated from the Father and the Son. Uh, to introduce some type of functional hierarchy and start inserting that in there, uh, it violates it violates uh, the nature of revelation itself. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, you actually touched quite a bit on my second methodological question, so I might um, narrow it in a little bit. So I, I wanted to talk about the relationship between the imminent and economic, and how much of an EFS articulation of Trinitarianism falls for the danger of conflation. But instead of talking about that in a more general sense, let's zoom into one particular test case uh, of 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, yeah, uh, glad to do so. And again, this is a big text, so um, those listening should certainly, uh, you know, consult the the good exegesis that's been done on this. Uh, And here I'm not just, I'm not referring to to me, but to many others as well. Uh, Maybe before we we get into that text, though, um, here— since we're on the subject, I, I do want to mention uh, Augustine's three rules yes, absolutely. of hermeneutics, because unless we understand this, I, I worry that we'll misunderstand that text. Um, when we talk about uh, how to interpret the many different kinds of texts we see uh, in the Gospels, uh, if we're not clear on different types, we, we might actually then run into this mistake of subordinating the Son within the imminent life of God. And Augustine even recognizes this in his own day. He gets real frustrated with those who are confusing these rules. So what are these rules? Well, you know, we can call them Augustine's rules. I think they're a little bit better than Ronner's rule. Um, a little theological joke there. But um, uh, these rules, you know, we call them Augustine's rules. Really, they're just scriptural, sc- scriptural principles. Number one, we might call this form of God. Some texts say the Son is one with the Father and is in the very form of God. Uh, you think of John 10.30, Philippians 2.6. Mm-hmm. These texts describe uh, the Father and the Son's unity and equality of substance. Okay. Second, uh, we have form of a servant. Uh, these texts say the Father is greater than the Son. You think of John 14.28, uh, for example. These do not mean that the Son is an inferior deity to the Father. The Son is lesser only in the sense that he has taken on the form of a servant, to use Paul's language in Philippians 2. Augustine says, well, that's because of the created and changeable human substance he took uh, to himself. 
And so according to his manhood, he humbles himself. I like that language a lot better than submission. Humbles himself seems to be the biblical language instead. He humbles himself and, and then obeys the Father for the purpose of fulfilling the mission of salvation. Mm-hmm. Then the third rule is these, for lack of a better phrase, these texts that refer to the Son being sent from the Father. You think of like John 5, 26, uh, where the Father gave to the Son life in and of himself. And then, um, you know, in that same chapter, the Son only does what he sees the Father doing. What do these texts refer to? Well, they refer to the Son um, not necessarily being equal or less, but instead revealing that the Son is from the Father. Yeah. Um, and, and Augustine, uh, as he's looking at Scripture, he's just uh, doing good her- basic hermeneutics here. Th- these are not only apply uh, to this discussion, but to just how to interpret the Gospels and the Epistles in general. And he gets frustrated when he says, you know, don't, don't look at sent language in the Gospels or language that says the Son is dependent on the Father in some way and conclude that authority and subordination reaches back into eternity, even into the imminent right. trinity. I mean, Augustine recognized this danger uh, long before our own day. Um, now, that being said, um, we can then, you know, turn to a text like 1 Corinthians 15, right? And let's, maybe we can just spend a couple minutes here and talk about uh, how to, you know, this is a text that EFSers love to appeal to, um, but like they say, you know, in, in real estate, location, 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 right? I would say the same thing in hermeneutics about context, 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 context. First um, Corinthians 15, I don't think um, it's accidental that the way that EFSers approach this text, and this is a, an observation Lewis Ayers makes, uh, is not all that different from the methodology that the homoions, mm-hmm. uh, the, their methodology uh during the uh, the fourth century, yeah, that's mm. fascinating. I, I think there is a parallel there that is very revealing. But that said, when we look at the context, the context of First Corinthians fifteen is not the imminent, but the economic. Now, maybe we could just pause here. Uh, you know, Sam, y- you've made we've talked about this before um, in between podcasts when. We're talking about eternity. Maybe we need to just qualify at this point because EFSers will say, well, uh, if there's any sign of submission uh, that references the Son outside of the incarnation, uh, well, there you go. What I, what, you know, I, I'm not the first to point this out. Stephen Holmes has made this point uh, over and over again uh, when he says, well, wrong eternity. Yeah. Uh, maybe you want to, to just talk about why, why does he say that? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm just repeating what's in your book, but you, <laughs> you mentioned in there that um, this fundamental um, mistaken assumption that if we're talking about eternity, we are talking about the imminent trinity. And that, that, that is a basic assumption that uh, you can tell it's a basic assumption when the conversation drifts into that direction and they say, well, look at this text. It's talking about the sun outside of time doing something that is eternal. Therefore, we're talking about the imminent trinity. The debate is over and it's almost treated as if the debate is over. But what it shows is, is that we haven't really come to grips with this category of economy. It's not, it's not a category that is exhausted within Mm-hmm. It's it is the category of God at extra. So it's yeah. God in relation to uh, 
his works, which is not, you know, before the foundations of the earth, he's, you know, he's doing things. So you mentioned um, on page 238 in your book, in your, in your little box on um, wrong eternity, you say the big mistake EFSers make comes down to an assumption. They assume that something that is eternal must also be imminent. You go on to say election, for example, occurs before the foundation of the world. It is, however, optional. God doesn't have to elect. Just because election is eternal doesn't mean that it is necessary for God to be God. That is the imminent trinity. Here's the lesson. Don't confuse the economy of salvation, even in eternity, with the imminent, inner, and necessary life of God in eternity. And the reason why that's so important is that if we don't make that distinction, it actually makes certain economic activities necessary for God to be God. Mm. And if you do that for God, for, for the Son's uh, humbling obedience to the Father, you also have to do that with something like election, yeah. which would mean in order for God to be God, since we're talking about eternal uh, activity, the pactum salutis, um, you know, the, um, the, the Trinity electing me unto salvation, that's happening in eternity. Well, if whatever is happening in eternity is also equivalent with the imminent Trinity, then you have to say something like electing me from the foundations of the world for salvation is necessary for God to be God, which is a problem to say. Yeah, least. yeah. And when we come to a text like 1 Corinthians 15, if we don't keep that in mind, then, then we run that risk mm -hmm. thinking, oh, well, as long as this isn't, you know, during the incarnation, well, then it just, subordination just must be true of the Son, person defining in the imminent trinity. No, uh, here the, the economy of salvation needs to be defined as a whole, and we shouldn't just assume uh, that, uh, you know, imminent and economic are, are the same. So in that, on that vein that, that you, just, you, know, you just mentioned, Sam, thanks for that. Uh, when we look at the context, what do we see in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, first of all, we notice Paul's focus isn't imminent uh, on the imminent trinity. His focus is very much on the economy of the Son's redemptive mission. Yes. That is so crucial to point out. Uh, you think of uh, verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22, for as by uh, a man Adam came death, by a man Christ uh, has come also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Mm. Paul's focus here is on Christ as the second Adam. Mm. Um, and when, by the time you get to verse 24, where he says, uh, at that point, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Well, notice what, what, what he's, he's continuing that same line of thought, Christ as the Adamic mediator and redeemer of God's people. Here, Christ is fulfilling his mission from the Father, and a day is coming when those in Christ will rise, and then comes the end. Mm -hmm. that's, that's where mm -hmm. Paul's going. By the time you get to verse 20, verses, uh, well, verse 28 in particular, right, we start to see this mission come to its fulfillment. And the beauty of that, by handing over the kingdom, Christ completes his mission by ushering his sheep into the hands of his father. Now, don't miss this, right? Verses 20 and 22 through 22, they speak to Christ as, as, as the one who's the Adamic mediator. Christ, the same Christ who is subjected to the Father, verse 28, who himself put all things in subjection to his crucified and risen Son. Well, 
that then includes the mission the father had given to him. Mm. So to introduce, to, to try to, to insert into this language here from Paul, to try to insert, uh, for example, uh, s- some notion of eternal obedience or subordination within the imminent life of God, mm. that's nowhere in view. Mm-hmm. What's in view? Mm. Instead, an incarnational Adamic obedience mm. as mankind's mediator. Uh, this is this has everything to do with the economy of salvation. And if you follow the rest of First Corinthians 15, Paul starts to go back to the Psalms. Yeah, Psalm 8, for example. Why does he do that? He's trying to emphasize that there is this this Savior is a servant. Mm. This isn't this isn't something uh, you know that's true of the imminent life of God. No, he is he is becoming incarnate, fulfilling this mission of salvation by means of his servanthood, which we tend to associate with Isaiah, but it's there in Psalm 8 as well. Mm. By the time you get done with 1 Corinthians 15, um, you start to recognize this theme of last Adam. It's not just pervasive in Paul, but it's it's found throughout the Gospels as well. Mm -hmm. Israel in the Old Testament was called God's son. Mm. We all know the story. Israel is a son that is unfaithful, Mm. right? So this brings us back to covenant headship categories. Christ comes as the new Israel, Mm. the new Adam and the new Israel. But unlike the previous son who is unfaithful, he comes as a servant who humbles himself and is faithful to the end. Uh, He is the true Israel, uh, the true obedient son in that sense. Mm. I think that this is one of the reasons why when you come to uh, the way that EFS extracts this Adamic obedience out of this covenantal context, well, it then superimposes this uh, obedience within the economy of salvation into the imminent trinity, and we actually lose out. We lose out on the importance and the significance Mm -hmm. and the uniqueness Mm. of this uh, of the mission itself. Uh, think, for example, of another passage like uh, Philippians chapter 2. Mm. Um, I like to ask the question, why is it for Paul that obedience here, uh, the, the type of humility he's talking about is so, is so scandalous, right, to those Philippians? Mm. Why, would, why would Paul go this direction? Well, uh, if you look at Philippians 2 and verse 7, he talks about Christ in the form of a servant. How so? He is being born into the likeness of men, he says in verse 7. What will this servanthood entail? That's the key question, right? Mm. Humility and obedience. This is why verse 8, he says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yeah, I think that that portion of the chapter is so important, uh, understanding the covenantal context of which 1 Corinthians 15 happens. And honestly, it's even a test case for why we should not put aside our theological categories when we come to the task of exegesis, Mm -hmm. uh, because actually having those theological categories in mind prevents us from a wrong interpretation of 1 Corinthians 15. So I think that's very helpful. And I actually want to press into uh, a related conversation yeah. on that that point of Christ, because some folks have looked at the conversation surrounding eternal generation, for example, or the disagreements around EFS, 
something like the imminent economic trinity as speculation only. And uh, they, they're willing to say something like there is no little, there is little to no real life significance in these conversations. However, anyone actually involved in the conversations of Trinitarianism knows that this is simply just not the case. Mm. In fact, doctrines like eternal generation are vital for a proper understanding of the gospel. And you bring up this very point in chapter 8 when you discuss the significance of the son's learned obedience. Mm. And so I would just love to hear you um, talk with listeners and, and help make the connection between something like eternal generation, Christ's obedience, and even their own salvation. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but go back to Philippians 2 again, right? Because uh, the language that Paul uses there, and you just said it, Ronnie, he learns o- obedience by virtue of his incarnation. Well, that language, if that if that is true, then that means that by virtue of assuming a human nature, he becomes obedient. He becomes obedient for the purpose of dying on the cross, the resurrection, ascension, and so much more. In other words, he, as Paul says, he takes the form of a servant rather than, uh, in this case, we're, we're not talking, you know, to use Augustine's rules about the form of God. Now, if, if that's the case, well, no wonder then, right? No wonder uh, the, this uh, notion of obedience in the mission is so scandalous mm. because this is not something that is just true of the Son yes. in the imminent Trinity. That's Paul's whole point. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, you think of another passage like Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, although he was a son, and notice, notice how the language is framed, right? It's a contrast. Although he was a son, he learned obedience how? Through what he suffered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that right there should throw up a red flag with EFS because this is, in other words, we're not referring um, like, like EFS does. We're not referring to something the son does anyway. Mm. Yes. Um, I think EFS muddies the, the purely benevolent, altruistic divine motive at this point. Not only did the son live and die for us, but in EFS categories, there's some type of sense in which he did this for himself because his mm-hmm. obedience was not an obedience for our sake only, but for his own sake as mm-hmm. well. What do I mean? Well, remember, EFS teaches that subordination or submission is what makes the son a son mm. before the foundation of the world, uh, before anyone was created, before anyone sinned. He cannot be son otherwise. So in eternity, within the imminent trinity, the son must be obedient or else. Now, the question is, or else what? Well, EFSers say time and time again, he, he, this is what defines him. It's, a, it's even mm. person defining. Well, if you transfer that logic to history as well, we end up with a huge problem. For EFS, the incarnation is but a continuation mm-hmm. of an eternal subordination. That's right. But notice, notice what's lost. Obedience to the point of death, then, well, that cannot be all that altruistic in the end. Mm. The son has to obey anyways. Otherwise, the very meaning of sonship is relinquished. Mm. Well, if that's the case, then the very thought empties the cross of sacrificial self-giving love. Mm. Um, at that point, it's a mere perpetuation of heaven, this uh, subjugation to suffering was a mere continuation uh, of eternity. I think in light of passages like Philippians 2 and Hebrews 5, that 
that actually undermines the very humility mm. uh, that makes grace so amazing in the yes. first place. Yeah, and even you didn't mention it explicitly, but the this category of active obedience, yeah. of seeing Christ's incarnate obedience is not his own, yeah. it's ours. It's yeah. it's it's an obedience. Yeah, it's a representational. He's the second Adam. He is covenantally succeeding where the first Adam and Israel and everyone else failed. Mm. And so it is it, it's it's our obedience. We're watching him obey the law for us when we when we see his perfect life as opposed to um this is just what uh son being son looks like with uh, skin and bones, you know. What's crazy um, is it's, you'd be hard-pressed to think of any superlative that would be exaggeratory in articulating how important this exact point is. Yeah. I mean, no less than most of soteriology is at stake, mm. you know. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I would just encourage listeners, if, if, if that last question and answer isn't quite clear, just rewind and listen yeah. to it a couple more times slowly with a Bible open, uh, because that point is so vital. I, I do want to bring us to our last question. I could have this conversation all day, so I hate to bring us to our last question, uh, but for the sake of time, we will end here. And I am so thankful this is where your chapter ended, Dr. Barrett. You have a subtitle for this chapter, and the subtitle is this, A Son Worthy of Worship. The first time I read the volume, when I saw that subtitle, uh, I, I was just thankful again. With this, with this point, you dispel, once again, any myth that this conversation is mere abstraction, mm. removed from importance for everyday Christian life. So how does a proper understanding of the imminent trinity and eternal modes of subsistence lead us to worship? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it does. I think it absolutely does. Um, I, I can't help but think of, a, of Matthew 14. Uh, I preached on this text once, and I felt so overwhelmed approaching it because I, I thought, how in the world can I do justice to the the way that the the disciples must have felt in that boat? Mm. Those you know, our listeners may remember in Matthew fourteen, this is a, right after Jesus feeds the five thousand uh, with those five loaves and two fish. You know, it's one of those Sunday school lessons that every kid knows, right? Uh, and then he 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 makes his disciples get in the boat. And he sails ahead of them, um, and he stays behind to pray. And then we know the story, right? Uh, this huge storm erupts, and then comes uh, Jesus when all seems lost. He's walking on the water, and Matthew says to his disciples, they're terrified, right? Uh, this is the language Matthew uses. They're just terrified, and um, it, it's almost as if, like, this is the end. You know, nature has turned into a demon, and um, they they start to look out on the sea, but they see something, and it's of course Christ, and he's um, he's walking towards them, and they are just speechless. Um, they 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 actually have a very appropriate response in light of what they're seeing, because Jesus, what he's the one that speaks, and he says, "Take heart, it is I." Do not be afraid. What happens next is, I don't even know how to put it into words. Um, it's unthinkable, really, if Jesus is not who he says he is. He gets into the boat, and the, Matthew says uh, the disciples, they worshiped him. 
They, they, this is one of those, those rare moments when there's no qualifications. Uh, it's just worship. Mm-hmm. And I would have loved to see what that would have looked like. I, I have some ideas, but they, the point is Jesus uh, is worshiped as the Son of God, as Matthew calls him, and it's just unequivocal worship in that moment. You know, in light of our discussion of EFS, you almost feel if you go the direction of EFS, there should be an interruption at this point mm-hmm. in the narrative mm-hmm. or in the event itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, wait, hold on. Shouldn't Jesus have stopped them and said, no, 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 no. You know, this may go back to your point, Sam. Um, ultimate praise, ultimate glory mm-hmm. is not mine. Mm-hmm. I'm a lesser authority than the Father. You should know that. Mm-hmm. So worship him. Let's deflect this and, and let's, let's just worship him. Give your praise to him. It's hard to see if if you go the EFS route. There's got to be some sense in which that that type of that 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 follows. I, I'm sure they would disagree with that, but it's hard to avoid. Mm. Um, but notice uh, in Matthew 14, Jesus stands there and he just receives it mm-hmm. in full. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there's no restrictions. There's there's no hesitation. There's no correction. Uh, What's what's happening? Well, you may remember back to like the fourth century, right? When um, there's this huge conflict over Arianism and then semi-Arianism and then all kinds of, you know, spinoffs. Worship was an issue. Mm. Uh, no matter what type of subordination they were confronting, it was an issue. So all that to say, Ronnie, I don't think you're far off to say this, this is relevant. Uh, this issue of doxology is relevant. Uh, when we come to say John's gospel, so that if we move from Matthew's gospel over to John's, what do we see there? Well, Jesus even claims there he should receive the same honor as the Father. Yes. You think of uh, John five twenty two through twenty three. For the Father judges no one, but he but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Father just as they honor that that all may honor the Son. That is just as they honor the Father. And then he says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Mm. Uh, Well, so this is the bottom line we want to get at. If if Jesus is not equal to the Father in every way, every way, right? I do not, how how do you go the length, go the distance, uh, whether it's a Matthew 14 or a John 5, or just understanding the the unapologetic worship that Jesus receives, mm. you know, to, to go back to the Athanasian creed as one, as one almighty, yeah. not three, but one almighty father, son, and Holy spirit. Mm. And of course our minds go to the end of the canon, right? To the book of revelation. Yeah. What do we see there? Revelation five, for example, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory yes. and blessing. and then. This is the question, right? If, if we go the EFS route, can we then say what comes next? To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, yes. be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Mm. You have to qualify that in some way to make room for EFS. And I just want to say to brothers and sisters out there, resist that temptation. Yeah. You, you don't do it. Yeah. Eat these words Let in the full. stops out. Just 
worship him. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. worship him yeah. like those disciples on the boat. There's no apology. There's no correction from Jesus. Worship him. Mm. And like Revelation says, he is, he is the lamb. He too is worshiped with the Father. Amen. Makes me think about that passage that's so important for my own dissertation um, in 2 Corinthians 3, you know, that whole section from 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 4, 6 that concludes with Paul telling us that the glory of God uh, that, that we look at, that we're transformed by and, and conforming to from one degree of glory to another, uh, that it, we see that glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Mm. And so we don't have to try to run this calculation of, okay, am I looking at this glory of Jesus's that is this penultimate glory? Should it be compelling me to look beyond Jesus to the glory of the Father or something like that? It is no. One glory. They share the same glory. So when you are looking at the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you're looking at the one simple Mm. triune glory of God and that's the grace of the incarnation is that he has brought divine, the divine glory of the Trinity into view. Mm. And yeah, it's so, such Amen. a good point. Amen. Well, brothers, thank you for this conversation. This has been a joy, at least for me. I don't know about for you too, but it's been Absolutely. a joy for me. Um, we, we uh, Dr. Barrett, Sam and I get to sit in the seat of benefit as two of your PhD students and uh, receive instruction from you. And I'm just so thankful that in this chapter and in this book, so many others get to at least get a taste of the blessing that Sam and I get and get instruction from you uh, on such a vital topic like, like the Trinity. So mm-hmm. thank you for writing. Well, uh, that's that's over, too, too kind of you, uh, really. I, I have to say that. And uh, I, I would just like to say, you know, to our listeners, you know, keep your eye on, on both Sam and Ronnie and the work that you guys are doing. Um, uh, Sam, you know, you've, you've been writing on, uh, you just mentioned, divine beauty uh you've been writing on uh that crucial crucial topic which of course has everything to do with the doctrine of god and and ronnie you're writing on divine immutability which is shocking that uh this hasn't been discussed more uh especially in light of modern theology so both of you are doing some excellent work and i would just say to our listeners yeah continue to to think hard about the trinity and the deep things of god and and look for uh the promising projects of both sam and ronnie that's kind of you you. amen yeah listeners thanks for being with us be sure to catch both episodes part one and part two covering chapter eight and uh, we pray that this conversation has been helpful to you that uh, through this conversation you might uh, more clearly see god and worship him fully as the triune god he is thanks for listening now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.